Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This is an RNZ podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Slevin sitting in for Simon Morris. This week on a special holiday edition of At The Movies, an American literary magazine in France in the 1960s reveals the secrets of its success. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. A teenage superhero has second thoughts when his secret identity is revealed. Nice knowing you, Spider-Man. Wait, excuse me? Everyone? Uh... Can't some people still know? That's not how the spell works. So my girlfriend's just going to forget about everything we've been through? I mean, is she even going to be my girlfriend? All right, fine. A musical classic has new life breathed into it by Steven Spielberg. A reclusive author is brought out of retirement by a struggling young publisher. I won't do the bloody tour. Mr Shaw, um... Give me a call when the cheque comes in. Berenson's article, The Concrete Masterpiece. Three dangling participles, two split infinitives, and nine spelling errors in the first sentence alone. Some of those are intentional. <laughs> the Kremens story, revisions to a manifesto. We asked for 2,500 words, and she came in at 14,000, plus footnotes, endnotes, a glossary, and two epilogues. It's one of her best. Sazerac? Impossible to fact check. He changes all the names and only writes about hobos, pimps, and junkies. These are his people. How about Roebuck Wright? His door's locked, but I could hear the keys clacking. Don't rush him. The question is, who gets killed? There's one piece too many, even if we print another double issue, which we can't afford under any circumstances. A message from the foreman. One hour to press. You're fired. Apparently, the films of Wes Anderson are an acquired taste. I say apparently because I acquired it so long ago and so easily that it took no effort at all. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou from 2004, featuring the habitually deadpan Bill Murray as an undersea explorer and documentary maker, is one of my favourite films for grown-ups. His adaptation of Roald Dahl's Fantastic Mr Fox, using stop-motion animation, is one of my favourite films for children. And The Grand Budapest Hotel, a star-studded celebration of an entirely imaginary Central European country, is one of my favourite films for the whole family. All of them bear repeated viewings, thanks to the dense scripts full of puns and dry wordplay, 
and the obsessive production design and mise-en-scene, revealing layers of visual jokes and references. You have to use your brain a bit, because Anderson assumes you'll be able to keep up, but I don't mind being given a bit of credit or having to do a tiny little bit of work. His latest film, The French Dispatch, was actually complete at the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, and was slated to play at the Cannes Film Festival that year. We've had to wait until now for it, and in my opinion, the wait has absolutely been worthwhile. It's full of laughs, but also shows that Anderson has a growing command of pathos, which just makes the film as a whole all the more delicious. I want to say it as simple as I can. To try to shape it into words, the feelings in my heart. I don't love you. What? I don't love you. Already? Already what? Already? How do you know that? How can you be sure so quick? I'm sure. Ouch. That hurts me. The cruelty of it. The cold-bloodedness. You said what you wanted to say. I tried to stop you. That's it. The French Dispatch is an anthology of four short thematically linked films plus a framing device. In the film, The French Dispatch is a 1960s era literary magazine produced in France for the American market, specifically the Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. It started out as an attempt to explain Europe to untravelled Midwesterners, but under the ownership and editorship of proprietor Arthur Howitzer Jr., played by Bill Murray once again, it has thrived as a publication where the finest writers are given quite staggering amounts of latitude. Not just based on, but clearly in deep thrall to, The New Yorker, the French Dispatch uses many of the real characters from that era of heavily researched and personally committed journalism as a founding base for its fiction. Students of the period will know many of the characters being referenced, but they might need some help with others. It matters not. What really matters is, as they say, the vibe. It feels like the actual 60s, you know, all the tumult, the revolution, the artistic ambition, has been merged at an almost genetic level with a film by Jacques Tati. The framing device is the sudden death of Howitzer Jr. and his final wish that the presses on the dispatch never roll again. Each of the short films introduces us to a different correspondent, looking back on the stories that made them famous. Tilda Swinton regales a conference audience with the concrete masterpiece, her story about the gifted prison artist Moses Rosenthaler, played by Benicio del Toro and his muse, a beautiful guard, played by Lea Seydoux. Rosenthaler's work makes him famous, but his stifled relationship blocks his creativity. Despite the attention of art dealers and investors, including Adrian Brody and Henry the Fonz Winkler, Herb Sazerac, played with typical insouciance by Owen Wilson, cycles through the dispatch's home city of Ennui-sur-Blasé, providing keen observations on European history. Geoffrey Wright plays the food writer Roebuck Wright in a 1970s television interview with Liev Schreiber, talking about how his triumphant dispatch story, The Private Dining Room of the Police Commissioner, came about after he started writing about a particular kind of cuisine tailored for the taste buds of on-duty police officers, but instead stumbled across a kidnapping and organised crime plot. 
And the legend that is Frances McDormand is Lucinda Kremitz, who fails to meet journalistic standards of objectivity when she gets involved with a young revolutionary, played by Timothy Chalamet, and agrees to rewrite his manifesto and encourage his love life. Please turn away. I feel shy about my new muscles. Go tell your parents you're home. They're worried. I'm expected back on the barricades. I didn't see any barricades. Well, we're still constructing them. Uh-huh. What are you writing? Our manifesto. I told them not to invite Paul, by the way. Maybe you're sad, but you don't seem lonely to me. Exactly. I saw you at the protest on top of a bookcase taking notes. Is there a story in us for the people of Kansas? Maybe. Then you should study our resolutions. Or anyway, will you proofread it? My parents think you're a good writer. Give it to me. It's a little damp. Physically or metaphorically? Both, based on the cover and the first four sentences. Don't criticize my manifesto. Oh, you don't want remarks? I don't need remarks, do I? I only asked you to proofread it because I thought you'd be even more impressed by how good it already is. Let's start with the typos. The French dispatch starts at a dizzying pace and the laughs flow freely along with our admiration for the work of production designer Adam Stockhausen and cinematographer Robert Yeoman. But the frenetic pace does ease off at times and lets the marvellous cast play with each other and Anderson's words. There are so many cameos from great actors in this picture, many not mentioned on the poster, that a second viewing is required just to pick all of them out. And then a third, at home probably, to pause and savour all the delightful bon mots. This is one I would want to own, if such a thing was still possible. Lieutenant Nescafier. He is fanatically celebrated among cooks, cops, and capitans, not to mention squealers, stoolies, and snitches, as the great exemplar of police cooking. It came to be known as the Night of a Thousand Slugs. There was supposed to be an article about a great chef. It is in part. French Dispatch is rated M for offensive language, nudity, drug use and sexual references and it's screening in cinemas that have great taste now. What just happened? We tampered with the stability of space-time. The multiverse is a concept about which we know frighteningly little. The problem is you trying to live two different lives. The longer you do it, the more dangerous it becomes. Be careful what you wish for, Parker. It's not immediately apparent, I'm sure, but the most challenging aspect of putting this program together is finding decent audio clips. I like ones that help me tell a story, but you don't always get much to choose from. Most big blockbusters keep their audio clip content to a minimum for spoiler reasons, and if they do post something a bit longer, it's usually one of their action sequences, so it has appeal to international audiences, which means that you get 45 seconds of this sort of thing. Imagine my distress this weekend when I discovered that there was some kind of copyright stoush between YouTube and Disney, which meant that all the Disney YouTube content had temporarily disappeared. 
even the grunts and the explosions. Where was I going to get my Spider-Man audio from? Then I remembered, Spider-Man is a Marvel character, which means he's owned by Disney. But he's currently on loan at Sony like a Premier League footballer. And sure enough, the Sony content had survived the apocalypse. There still wasn't that much to choose from, mind, but at least there was something. You ready? I'm ready. Nice knowing you, Spider-Man. Wait, excuse me? Everyone? Uh, can't some people still know? That's not how the spell works. So my girlfriend's just going to forget about everything we've been through? I mean, is she even going to be my girlfriend? All right, fine. <laughs> Everyone in the world's going to forget that you're Spider-Man, except your girlfriend. Thank you so much, Ed. Oh my god, Ned. Okay, let's not change the parameters of this spell anymore while I'm casting Okay, I'm done, I'm done. I swear I'm done, I'm done. Spider-Man No Way Home is Tom Holland's third outing in a Spider-Man film, Homecoming, Far From Home, and now No Way Home. But he's also played the character in three Avengers films and has apparently signed on for three more standalone pictures for Sony. He obviously loves playing the guy, and who can blame him? In No Way Home, the world now knows his secret identity as mild-mannered high school student Peter Parker. The world also thinks he murdered Mysterio at the end of the previous film. And modern media being what it is, truth is an early and permanent casualty of that battle. Frustrated at the toll the attention is taking on the lives of the people around him as well as his own, he has the bright idea to visit fellow New York resident Avenger Doctor Strange, Benedict Cumberbatch, who he knows has the power to either turn back time or do something equally funky to get everyone off his back. Not having thought this thing through, the impetuosity of youth and the wisdom of experience being one of the themes of the film, he distracts Strange while he's casting the crucial spell. Soon, unintended consequences start arriving from other dimensions. Anyone in any of the other multiverses who had the words Peter Parker and Spider-Man in their head at roughly the same time is heading over the horizon, all with axes to grind. Alfred Molina is up first as Dr. Octopus, closely followed by his compadre the Green Goblin, played to his usual 110% by Willem Dafoe. They're both from the Tobey Maguire-era Spider-Man, the Sam Raimi trilogy that started all this superhero guff off back in 2002. Then, Jamie Foxx reprises his role as Electro from the Andrew Garfield films that came ten years later, and Reese Farns as the lizard Kurt Connors, as well as Thomas Hayden Church as Sandman. It's a supervillain convention, but... They had all been defeated by different iterations of Spider-Man from different epochs. And my word, what can that all mean? What is this place? The mirror dimension, where I'm in control. Strange, stop! Can we please just talk about this? Parker, don't you realize that in the multiverse there are an infinite number of people who know Peter Parker is Spider-Man? And if that spell gets loose, they're all coming here. Look, I know, I get it, but we can't just send them home to die. It's their fate. You can't change that any more than you can change who they are. Oh, what are you doing? What it means is that there is, as always, 
a stupendously explosive final battle atop the Statue of Liberty this time with Spider-Man supported by their mates MJ, played by Zendaya, who gets stronger with every film, and Ned, Jacob Batalon, as well as Cumberbatch's Strange attempting to repair his poor wizardry workmanship. You'll notice I said there, there. Don't read anything into it, that's just Spider-Man's new pronouns. You won't find any spoilers here, nope, no siree. This is the moment where I give a shout-out to the true heroes of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the casting directors. Francine Maisler, who brought us Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield back in the day, of course, but especially Sarah Halley Finn, who's been casting for Marvel since Iron Man in 2008. She knew that the better the performers in the suits, the more likely they would be able to sell the weirdness that we would be seeing on screen. And the special effects those actors will often only have the vaguest concept of. And these films rely so much on their actors. If the down-to-earth stuff doesn't work, you don't care what happens in space. I think of how the great dramatic actors carry these films. Mark Ruffalo, Cumberbatch, Swinton, Chadwick Boseman. And of course, not to mention Sir Ben Kingsley as the great Trevor Slattery, MVP, every time he appears. But I digress. I liked this Spider-Man because it was all about trying not to kill people for a change, and that second chances are still possible, and that sometimes you have to let go of things you love in order to truly find yourself. It's a bit of a mess as a film, frankly, but it's a decent mess. Oh, look at this. This is a good one. Some suggest that Parker's powers include the male spider's ability to hypnotize females. Stop, come on. <laughs> yes, my spider lord. <laughs> Can we just like stay up here all day? It is so crazy down there. That's right, folks. Spider-Man is in fact Peter Parker. Listen, I did not kill Mysterio. The drones did. The drones that are yours. Does any part of you feel relieved about all this? What do you mean? Now that everybody knows you don't really have to hide or lie to people. For the record, I never wanted to lie to you. But how do you tell someone that you're Spider-Man? Now everybody knows. But this isn't about me. This is hurting a lot of people. One final observation. At the screening I was at last weekend, a fly buzzed around the cinema the whole time, sometimes hovering in front of the screen and sometimes landing on the glass of the projection window, casting a smeary shadow. Oh, the pain of not having a radioactive spider when you really need one. Spider-Man No Way Home is rated M for violence and is playing on almost every screen of every multiplex in the country now. This is my first time in New York City. I want to be happy here. I want to make a life at home. Are you ready? Tonight is about family. The first gringo boy who smiles at you. I never seen you before. You're not Puerto Rican. Is that okay? Do you want to start World War III? When I heard back in 2018 that Steven Spielberg was planning to remake the 1961 film of West Side Story, I was briefly bemused. Why would anyone want to do that? I said to myself, 
and then didn't think much more about it. COVID came and never left, which meant that the release, like so many others, was delayed. Meanwhile, Lin-Manuel Miranda's In the Heights came out, which sort of gave me a taste for New York-flavoured musicals once more. And now, just in time for a family outing, here is the Spielberg version. All shiny and lens-flary and blow-me-down, it's absolutely stunning cinema. To be fair, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. The bones are pretty good after all, starting with that hack William Shakespeare and his star-crossed Romeo and Juliet. Shift it to 1950s Manhattan, make the Capulets and the Romulans or whatever they are a Puerto Rican teen gang called the Sharks and a bunch of working-class whites called the Jets. Add the music of maestro Leonard Bernstein and the lyrics of the 26-year-old prodigy Stephen Sondheim and choreography by the New York City Ballet's Jerome Robbins and you've got the makings of an American classic, even if The Music Man actually won more Tony Awards in 1958. And Robert Wise's original 1961 screen adaptation won 11 Oscars. That film has a reserved parking spot in the Pantheon, for sure. But for most modern audiences, West Side Story has become pickled, preserved, much like Waiting for Godot is stuck with the Beckett estate resisting attempts at innovation. The Robbins choreography is embedded in the text. And, well, what could Spielberg possibly do with it except... I suppose, shoot it really well. But how could a new version have anything worthwhile to say? What's forever? Like, I want to be with you forever. You don't want to start maybe with, I'd like to take you out to coffee? No. Come on. I want to take you to a shop full of nuts for a cream cheese sandwich on a raisin bread. This ain't casual like that. Oh. I want to be with you forever. Quiero estar contigo para siempre. Quiero estar con... con... con contigo, with you, contigo. para siempre. 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 The secret weapon here is screenwriter Tony Kushner, who's worked with Spielberg on Munich and Lincoln, on top of his own Broadway successes like Angels in America. The moment you know you're in the presence of something really different is in the very first sequence as Bernstein's prologue plays. Spielberg's camera floats down towards a wrecked and skeletal New York neighbourhood, a handful of tenements standing proud in a sea of rubble, like London after the Blitz. But this time, it isn't the Nazis, it's New York doing it to itself. Gentrification. The camera rests on a sign promoting the important new development taking the place of all these working-class homes. It's the Lincoln Center for the Arts, a monument to high culture of the kind that West Side Story itself would eventually be a part of. The original West Side Story was not much interested in the politics of class or race in the New York that existed before the current one was built, but Kushner definitely is, and he gives each side of the divide a vivid and meaningful backstory, motivation beyond simply turf. At one point, Corey Stoll, as Lieutenant Schrank, admonishes the Jets as the only Caucasians who couldn't get out and make something of themselves, unlike the Irish and the Italians, he means. The Jets have been told they're useless for so long, they believe it. 
and in this version there's a real danger about them that reaches its zenith in the attempted rape of Anita near the end. In a classic Kushner Spielberg touch during the ostensibly comic song G. Officer Krupke, a streetwalker in the police station with the Jets boys locks herself in the cage while they're singing. She knows what they're capable of. You know, I wake up to everything I know either getting sold or wrecked or being taken over by people that I don't like. You keep away from him as long as you're in my house. I'm a grown-up now, Bernardo. I'm going to think for myself. Tony, we need you if we're going to war. Who are you? The cast are fantastic, especially Rita Moreno returning to West Side Story after 60 years to a role that was retooled especially for her. In another moment of genius, she's given the song Somewhere, which is usually reserved for Tony and Maria. And by doing that, Spielberg gives the song to everyone. They're all just looking for a place, a new way of living, a way of forgiving. Spielberg's direction is triumphant. Even though he's never directed a musical before, he clearly could have been doing this all his life. With Justin Peck's choreography doing just enough to honour Robin's original movement language, but still take it in thrilling new directions, Spielberg's fluid camera and always intelligent framing make West Side Story a modern classic all over again. Like Spider-Man, West Side Story is rated M for violence, but unlike Spider-Man, you won't get as many screening choices. But please make the effort. It opens on Boxing Day. We're not bears! We're not bears! Didn't you see the signs? I can't stand people who can't read. I'm Lucy Stanbridge from Stanbridge Publishing. Thank you. This is Rachel. Um, We're so sorry to disturb you. Love what you've done with the place. Last, and probably a little bit least, here's one of those independent dramas that are an endangered species in the world of post-Covid cinema. Earlier this year, while he was promoting this film, 88-year-old Michael Caine announced his retirement from acting. To be fair, he walked that back the next day, and he does have a couple more credits lined up, but he could be forgiven for wanting to get off the treadmill at his age. Like his character in the film Bestsellers, you might say. He plays reclusive author Harris Shaw, a lonely widower, drinking himself slowly to death with his cat in snowy upstate New York. Redemption appears in the shape of Lucy Stambridge, played by Aubrey Plaza, inheritor of a boutique Manhattan publishing house on its last legs. If she can coax one last book out of shore, she might be able to save the company. And she has a secret weapon, a long-lost agreement originally signed by her father that might put Shaw back in the charts. Then again, it might not. Times have changed. So how a book is released today has become just as meaningful as its content. I won't do the bloody tour. Mr. Shaw, um... Give me a call when the check comes in. 
You are aware of the contract that you signed with my father? The one that, that states that you do the tour or I edit the book. So those are your choices. I'll be damned if I let the incompetent hand of nepotism molest my words, Silver Spoon. I'm just thinking about what's best for the book. And you think that's you? You snarky dilettante. Those are your choices. Shaw does his best to sabotage and derail all of Stanbridge's attempts at promotion until she slowly realises that his refusal to play the game is actually making him something of a hero to jaded millennials. He's an octogenarian punk rocker, more likely to piss on his book than read from it. Kane's age is showing, of course, but he's in full flow here as he rails like Lear against the storm of market-driven modernity. When asked what his walking stick is made out of, he replies dismissively, Whale dick. Of course, this mismatched road trip has to result in a rapprochement across the generations eventually, but I was quietly surprised at how many edges the film held on to. Even if it is a bit mean about booksellers, a profession of which I'm very fond. You know, despite your mantra, the very popular hashtag bull bleep uh, is sweeping the nation, but I've read the book. And I happen to think that there's an element of truth behind those words. That's right. A profound, deeper meaning that you're getting at. Toffee knows you get Bestsellers is rated M for offensive language, quite a lot in fact, even at his age Mr Kane can get quite salty, and it opens on selected local cinema screens on Boxing Day. And that's our program for this week. One genuinely unexpected pleasure in Spider-Man Far From Home was this needle drop for the closing credits, the stone-cold hip-hop classic Magic Number from De La Soul's 1989 album Three Feet High and Rising, an album that, like a lot of their early music, is still not available on streaming services due to contractual disputes. That is a lot of money to be left on the table right now after this song has been exposed to literally tens of millions of viewers. This week's edition of At The Movies was produced, written and edited by me, Dan Slevin. I'll be back for the first At The Movies of 2022 in the last week of January, and I hope you'll be able to join me then.